we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is our treasure. And Father, we thank you this morning for reminding us that you are faithful and you are with us. Lord, and in those two things, we take great confidence today. Lord, that you are faithful, that you are with us. Lord, in a few moments as we come to gather around your word, what assurance it gives us as we open the pages of this book to know that you are forever faithful and that here, right now, on this weekend and in this room, you are with us to speak to us, encourage us, minister grace to our souls and show us more of your glorious Son. Oh Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things Lord, that you would be glorified in our midst this morning and that our hearts would burn with a renewed passion and delight in you. In these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do take a seat. Let me, um, let me say, first of all, just a few words about the children. Uh, first up, kids, I hope that you know, and I'm going to tell you again, we love, as a church, meetings like this where we get to have you in with us. We are a church family from like age zero. Have we got anyone that's age zero? I don't know. Are we, are we still got some? Oh, how old's Aaron now? He's not one. Not one, okay, yeah, so zero, yeah. Um, all the way up to, well, I won't name the oldest person because I can't quite remember how old he is. We are, we're a family of all ages, and so we want you to know, us adults in the room, we love when you kids stay in with us. And um, I'm confident that God wants to speak to you and encourage you just as much as he wants to encourage your parents this weekend. So it's great that you're here. Now, as you're listening this morning, Karen has very kindly made some activity sheets for you to do as well. And so if you haven't already found them, I know some of you have, but if you haven't, they're on a table just out there. And then... Actually, the, I was going to say something about crèche-aged children, but they might be working it out a little bit. Um, let me just say, if you have got crèche-aged children, the toys are just out there. And so at any point, you're very welcome to pop out there. Keep the door open. We don't mind about the noise. Maybe you can listen in. But I think parents are probably working out how to share that between themselves. All right. Just grab my... All a bit different this morning. We've got a voice recorder stuck on with sticky tape. And um, no shoes, I know. I know. And I don't know what's I don't know what's more inappropriate, wearing slippers, which seems strange, to, to, to preach or to wearing socks. <laughs> okay. Great. Please have a Bible in hand. As you're going to see in a moment, we are exploring a particular theme this weekend. And so I don't have one particular passage for us, um, but we're going to be looking all over God's words. M much of it's going to come up on the screen, but do have a Bible with you as well. Um, I wanted to start with a quote from an author that some of you might be familiar with. Maybe you read him some years ago. A man called A.W. Tozer. Here's what he said. The most significant fact about any man or woman is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his heart 
sorry, what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Our theme for our two main sessions this weekend is a God-centred church. Why we should be a God-centred church. What is a God-centred church and how we can be a God-centred church. Now this is a theme that Pete and I really feel God has laid upon our heart for us as a church at this time, for this weekend. In much the same way that last year we felt that God had given us this theme of gospel culture to explore more. We believe that was a timely message for us then and one which, by the grace of God, we see at work still in our church now, bearing fruit. And so with a strong sense of leading, once again, Pete and I do believe that a God-centred church is a timely theme for us this weekend. And we're praying that it would bear fruit in our lives together, not just this morning, not just this weekend, but for the many weeks and months and even years to come. We're going to look at this in two parts. Tomorrow, Pete is going to explore more of the practical implications of how to be a God-centred church. This morning, I want to simply set forward before us something of a biblical vision for why it is that every local church, including Grace Church, ought to strive in every way to be a God-centred people. So it's more vision today and more application tomorrow, but I want to be clear, I'm not just intending to inform our minds this morning. My greatest prayer for this message over the last few weeks has been that God, speaking to us through his word and by his spirit today, would significantly reawaken and revive in us a deep, earnest, heartfelt yearning to know and experience more of him. That, that's my prayer. And God answers prayers, and so I have faith he's going to answer that this morning. So, so my intention is to aim for heads and hearts this morning. It's what God loves to do. So may the Holy Spirit grant in each of us a wide open door in both our heads and our hearts. Well, I'd like to be begin with a question. You don't have to shout out your answer, but think about this one. Why does the church exist? What is the primary purpose of, of any and every church in God's eyes? Or to make it more personal, why are you part of a church? Why do you consider church to be an important ingredient in your Christian life? You, you, like me, turn up at church most Sunday mornings and are involved in church in a multitude of ways. Why is it such an important ingredient? Think for a moment about some of the answers that different Christians might give to that question. Why do you go to church? Well, some Christians might say, I, I go to church to be with other Christians. I go to church to be spiritually recharged. I go to church to be comforted and encouraged. I go to church to learn from the Bible. I go to church to serve other people. I go to church so I can bring my unbelieving neighbour. See, all of those things, they're good things. Good secondary reasons to come together in a church. All good motivations. But which of them is the crowning reason? 
Which of them is the ultimate reason for why the church exists and why we are a part of it? What in the end is the number one ultimate purpose of the church above all things? Well, Romans 15 verse 6 is one verse that provides the answer. The church exists, says Paul, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I have three headings this morning. The first of them is these. The church, church exists for the glory and praise of God. Above all those other good things that we might consider as goals for our church life together, first and foremost, the church exists to bring glory to God. To know and love and reveal his glory. To magnify it like a telescope. To bring praise to him and to showcase just how overwhelmingly awesome and glorious he is. Now in many ways, hopefully that doesn't come as too much of a surprise to us because the Bible tells us again and again that in actual fact, everything, everywhere, in all creation exists for the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6. He creates and rescues people for his own glory, Isaiah 43. He saves and redeems us to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1. One day we're told Jesus will return to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, 2 Thessalonians 2. And in the meantime, our instructions are that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything in all creation, including the church, especially the church, exists for the glory and praise of God. John Piper says all of creation, all of redemption, all of church, all of society and culture exists to display God. Nothing and no one is an end in itself, but only God. All things are from him and through him and to him. Church worship services, church Sunday school classes, church nurseries, church committee meetings, church small groups, church evangelism, church missions, all of them exist for this one ultimate thing, to make much of the greatness of God. So whatever other secondary things a church might do and accomplish, if it doesn't first and foremost bring glory to God and, bring, and make much of his greatness, if it isn't a God-centered church, it is less than worthless, it is nothing. Well, I wonder how all of that lands on us this morning, that the church doesn't ultimately exist for us, but we for God, for God and his glory. Uh, again, I trust it's not a surprise to us, but even so, it can be a little bit jarring to our everyday way of thinking about our life together as a church. A bit like an unexpected splash of cold water on our face in the morning. And maybe if you did get in the shower too quickly this morning, that's what happened. A, a, a burst of cold water and a, a bit of a shock, but refreshing. Or maybe... Hearing this is like that humbling realisation when you've been driving and you finally realise you've taken a wrong turn about five miles back and you've been heading in the wrong direction. And now you've got to turn around and get back on the right road. 
Or maybe, sort of most shocking of all, it's like that heart-skipping jolt when you realise you're, you're driving and you've fallen asleep at the wheel. That's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Um, not just because of what it means and the danger you're in, but just the feeling. Oh, I mean, you, it feels like you're having a heart attack, doesn't it? And, and, and the alarm as you wake up. Just falling asleep for a split second. Something deadly dangerous could have happened. Maybe it's like that as we're reminded this morning that we exist for God and not him for us. But what a blessing it is to be jolted back awake. One of the greatest dangers, I think, for any church and for any Christian, and the one that we do need God to sometimes jolt us awake from, is the danger that at some point we might begin veering off course in our Christian lives Losing sight of why we ultimately exist. Not for ourselves, but for God. And I think perhaps the commonest cause of us losing sight of who we're here for is that over time we have this tendency in us, this sinful tendency, to shrink God down in our thinking. A tendency to lose sight of the true God and instead refashion God into a more manageable size and form, to bring him down to manageable proportions. Just think for a moment about Israel, the people of Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They'd only just been brought up out of Egypt. They'd only just been rescued by God in the most incredible way. And even while Moses is still up the mountain uh, receiving instructions from God for them, the people back on the ground decide it would be better to worship God in a more recognizable and manageable form. And so, as you know, they make a golden calf. They make a miniature-sized version of God. We all have this sinful tendency to do the same. Even as Christians, we allow our perception of God to shrink over time. Over time, we lose sight of his sheer greatness and majesty and glory. And then this lesser God that we now have in our minds, this diminished idea of God that we begin to operate with, he begins to have far less of a pull on our lives than he should. He, it, God is meant to be like the sun at the center of all things with, with all of the planets orbiting around him because he, he is that big and bigger. He's so big and glorious and life-giving. But when we start to live with the diminished view of God in our minds, we make him more like the moon a small, lifeless satellite in the sky that orbits around us. And then God, the true God, no longer captures our attention and our adoration to the degree that he once did. And our eyes, they just begin to start to almost naturally refocus onto other things. We and our needs, which aren't unimportant, can become the centre of all things for us. The, the thing of first importance. And God, to our mind, now just follows us wherever we choose to go. He kind of pops up and in and out of you like the moon. Shines a little light on us when things get dark, but much of the time we don't notice he's there. Here's the problem. When we allow that to happen in our hearts and in our church life together, when we allow that to happen, when we begin to worship a diminished view of God, a shrunken God, a, man a more manageable God, a God who orbits around us rather than us around him, well, it's no longer the true God that we're worshipping. It is an idol. 
As someone once said, the essence of idolatry isn't just bowing down to outright false gods, but also entertaining in our minds false and small thoughts about the true God. That is just as much idolatry as bowing down to a golden calf. But in some ways it's even more dangerous because as Christians we're even more susceptible to it happening. It sneaks under the radar, this kind of drift. It's a slow and subtle erosion in our lives, just bit by bit over time, as we increasingly entertain in our minds smaller and smaller thoughts about God, until he loses the gravitational pull on our hearts that he should have, and we're, we're no longer God-centered at all. The reason that Pete and I wanted to make God-centered church our theme this weekend is not because we believe that's happened here at Grace Church, that God is not at the center, but it's because we recognize it's an ever-present danger in every church, that it could happen, and that we could individually or together drift off in that direction and find ourselves somewhere down the road no longer being a God-centered church. We want to address it this weekend so that it doesn't happen, so that we can recommit ourselves again as a church family this weekend to joyfully resolve to go forward this coming year, striving all the more to be a church who worship and adore and bow down in every way to the true God, the all-glorious God, the God who reveals himself by his Spirit in the most magnificent ways in the pages of the Bible, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, not in the whims and fancies of our imaginations. For some of us, this weekend might be like that cold splash of water in our faces, reviving us and refreshing us and awakening us in the morning. For others of us, it might be that more humbling but welcome realisation that we've been going off course recently. We've taken a wrong turn in thinking about how we think about God and ourselves and the church. And it might be that God God is lovingly calling us to back up Get back on the road and start pointing in the right direction again towards him. But for some of us, this weekend might be nothing less than that divine jolt. To sharply awaken us at the wheel to where we've been completely asleep. Eyes closed to God completely. Careering out of control away from him. Remember, the person who came to mind, biblical character, was uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel? He fell into madness when he tried to set himself up at the center of all things. He tried to set himself himself up at the center. And he tried to take God's glory for himself. And as a result, for seven years, he lost his mind and much of his humanity until finally his sanity was restored to him when he humbled himself and lifted his eyes towards heaven and acknowledged that God alone was God. Here's what he said at the end of those seven years, Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honoured him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. A weekend like this is a great place to lift our eyes to heaven again, to restore our sanity, 
to humble ourselves once more before the Most High God and to freshly resolve together again to be a wholeheartedly God-centered people in all that we do, to ensure and, and, and recognize again he is like the sun, not the moon. He is our center. To ensure, as someone once said, that he has such spiritual mass in our eyes again that he pulls every area of our lives once more into his orbit. And the fundamental, the fundamental way to do that is to keep on ensuring that in our church it is the real biblical God that we're pursuing. We must ensure that it is the real biblical God that we're pursuing, which brings us to our second heading this morning. The church's theme is the person and work of God. The church's theme is the person and work of God. Christianity, as you know, is not just a list of bare, impersonal facts. The Bible is not just a map with directions on how to get somewhere. It is all about a person. A person who came to find us and rescue us and bring us back to himself. It is all about God, who has revealed himself most brightly and brilliantly in the person and work of his son. And so, the Christian life that we share together as a church and the mission that we share together as a church is to be most keenly focused at every turn on the person and work of God in Jesus. We are to be ever growing in our knowledge of him and always striving to help others grow in their knowledge of him as well. If you look out in the world, or actually it reminds me of university days, anyone's ever been to a freshers' fair, um, and freshers' fairs are just full of clubs and societies, and it is mind-boggling what things people decide to set up a society or a club around. The interests that people have. Uh, I guess that's the diversity, the, the beautiful diversity of humanity, the way God's made us. But so there's an almost unimaginable number of clubs and societies and interest groups who make their subject matter all manner of themes, from sports to politics to health to history to botany and beekeeping and baking and bread making. But the number one subject and theme of the church, the focus of every church, its keenest interest above all other things must be by God's design and decree, the person and work of God in Jesus. This must be our theme. He must be our theme. And that couldn't be clearer in the scriptures. It could not be clearer in God's word. You see it first of all in uh, for instance, in the way that the whole of the New Testament, not to mention the Old Testament, has this as its signature theme. Every time one of the apostles, for instance, sits down to write a letter to one of the churches, they could have chosen all manner of things to write about. And certainly they do address different situations in different churches, different things going on. But they only ever talk about this one supreme theme bringing that theme to bear on all of those different situations and circumstances and churches and people, that theme of the person and work of God in Jesus. And every time they, they had the opportunity to visit one of those churches, they, they made it their aim to preach on this one grand theme. Whether it was Paul eager to preach the gospel to those who were already Christians in Rome, or resolved to only preach Christ and him crucified in Corinth, or the Apostle John proclaiming only that which he had seen and heard from Jesus himself. 
in Ephesus. It's the knowledge of this one theme, it's the knowledge of this one person that they wanted the churches to be oh so firmly grounded in and growing in at all times and in all situations. In the face of all questions, blessings, difficulties and dangers, growing always in the knowledge of the person and work of God in Jesus. And then unsurprisingly, this was the thing that they prayed for most often as well. I think you can tell a lot about a person's values, their real values, by what they pray for. I don't know if you've ever taken stock of what do I pray for each day and what, what kind of rises most to the surface in my, my, my wants and my requests. It's a bit like the boy whose mother overheard him praying one morning, asking that God would send water, uh, would send rain to water and refresh the lawn. And uh, well, not only was she pleased that her son was praying, but she also appreciated his love of nature and his care for the world outside. Until, that is, she realised that her husband's parting words to him that morning were, don't just laze around all day, but make sure you mow the lawn before I get home. <laughs> Our prayers reveal what we most desire, sometimes in an obvious way, sometimes in a more covert and clever hidden way. The question is, do we have the same desires and priorities in prayer as Paul? Take Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.17 as an example. There he prays for this church in Ephesus, these, these Christians who already have a clear and saving knowledge of Jesus. They know the gospel. They, 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 know, they know him. They've trusted in him. They're saved. Here's what he prays for them, Ephesians 1.17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is a prayer that those who already have and know the gospel, those who already know God, would keep growing in their knowledge of him. Growing in their knowledge of his saving power and of the hope that is theirs in him. Or take his prayer in Colossians 1, Colossians 1 verse 9. And so from the day we heard about your faith in Christ, from the day we heard you knew Christ, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. <coughs> the question is, not only do we pray like this, but do we recognise that Paul's priorities in prayer perfectly reflect God's priorities for his church? Paul's priorities in prayer perfectly reflect God's priorities for his church, for us. And so you see, any suggestion that a church might be too truth-centred or word-centred or theology-centred or knowledge-centred 
Any suggestion that a church should merely exist to tell people enough about Jesus to, to save them and get them across the, the salvation line and no more is not a church that the New Testament would recognize. Not a church that is fulfilling the great commission of making not just converts, but making disciples who are ever growing in their knowledge of God and obedience to his commands. Our mission together as a church is to make Jesus known to those who don't know him. Oh, we have a great mission there. A great call on our lives to make him known to those who don't know him, but also to make him known more and more to those who do, to one another. That we might bear fruit in every good work and be continually increasing in the knowledge of God. That is our mission as a church. And yet there, there's one more, there's one important qualifier that I want to add here that we mustn't miss in this. Mustn't miss this. This growing knowledge, this is no cold, impersonal, academic knowledge that we're talking about. A God-centered church is no mere lecture hall or academic institution where our heads are just increasingly fed, our heads are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, fed with the knowledge of God, but it doesn't affect our hearts. The Pharisees provide for us a stark warning against that kind of Christianity. They loved head knowledge without heart knowledge, and Jesus rebuked them saying, you don't even know me. The church is not to be a gathering of academic Pharisees. It is to be a place where the knowledge of God increasingly grips both our heads and our hearts in the power of the Spirit. A place where, as Paul prays in Ephesians 3, you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The church is to be a place where we not only know about God, but where our heart cry is to personally know him and experience him more and more. And so my third heading for this morning, the third thing I want to say about us being a God-centered church is the church's heart cry is to know and experience God. We exist for the glory of God. Our theme is the person and work of God in Christ. And our heart cry should be to know and experience God. Consider again for a moment how you might answer a person who asked you what you think the best thing about being a Christian is. Actually, take, take a moment. Think about that question. What do you think the best thing about being a Christian is? Imagine your neighbor asks you, your friends ask, friend would ask you, what would you say? There are so many things to choose from, aren't there? There are so many blessings that are ours. It's a good question to think about because it reminds us, oh, the goodness that God has shown us, the benefits that are ours because of the cross of our Saviour Jesus. We have justification, a rightness with God, forgiveness, the removal of guilt and shame, Peace, reconciliation, the knowledge that we are loved beyond measure, all of these things and more are rich treasures bestowed on every Christian by the Father, through the Son and through the Spirit. And we could talk to our friends all day about any one of these things, 
But none of these things in the end are the Christian's ultimate treasure. They're all incredible, but they're all given to us to pave the way for us to get to the greatest of all treasures. The greatest treasure of all is God himself. And the greatest of all blessings that he has bestowed on us is that we now have unhindered access to know God himself. To know God personally and intimately. Knowing God personally is the greatest of all jewels in the Christian's treasury. It is the thing that will sustain our joy at unimaginable heights for all of eternity that we know God. John 17 verse 3, Jesus says, Jesus prays to his father, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you. They know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the word for know here in this verse, the, the, the Greek word gnosko, it speaks very clearly of an experiential knowing, not just an intellectual one. An experiential knowing of God. Paul Washer writes, it's experiencing God. Not just some comprehension of the mind or the intellect, knowing about him. It's so that we can honestly say, not only do I have high thoughts of God, but I walk with him. He is my reality. Now, of course, we do need to know things about God in order to know him. We, we need to know theology and doctrine and the things that God has revealed about himself in his word. Uh, just like in any friendship, part of our friendship rests on us taking a keen interest in knowing things about our friends. Our friendship deepens as we learn more about them, what they're like and uh, what they like and what they do. But our friendship is more than just about knowing that friend, knowing about them. It is a knowing of them personally. It's a knowing that's experienced in a friendship. It's a knowing that's close and relational and intimate. That's the life that God intends for his people. He intends that for us now, that we would know him closely and relationally and intimately now, in this world, on this weekend. That's the gift of eternal life that we have been given through Jesus. Ephesians 2 verse 18, for through Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. This knowing God, it's the fulfillment of the most incredible Old Testament promise, one that the Old Testament prophets could only dream of, of seeing fulfilled and truly experienced. Jeremiah 31 verse 33, looking ahead at that time, he said, for this, God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Jeremiah is looking forward, but we live in a day when that promise has been fulfilled. We live in a day when that promise should be and is our experience. Meaning, if you're a Christian here this morning, you know the Lord. There might be a variety of reasons why we feel we don't know him very well. 
But even if you consider yourself this morning the least of all Christians, God says you know him personally and he knows you. That is God's promise to you and I today. And it's the greatest of all gifts that Christ has given us. The question is, and this is the question that I've been wrestling with in my heart, with much self-examination over the last few weeks. The question is, do I value and treasure the fact that I know him? And do I value that and treasure it above all other treasures? Do I as a result, truly desire to know God more and more. It would be a strange thing, wouldn't it, for someone to marry a person and then have no desire to be with them and grow in knowing them more intimately in the months and years to come. It would be, it'd be strange, wouldn't it? It would be wrong. We would know that wasn't right. That's not what a marriage is. We know that one of the greatest blessings of marriage is a growing friendship and a growing intimacy over all the years that follow. Well, just as the wedding day is only the beginning of knowing a spouse in that way, so our conversion day was only the beginning of our getting to know God in that way. On that day, this promise became true of us. Now, you know God. But it was only the beginning. We're not meant to be satisfied with just that amount. We're not meant to be satisfied with just knowing about God. We're not meant to be satisfied with only knowing him personally, in the most minimal and superficial way, the repeated heart cry of all believers throughout the Bible and of Christians throughout church history has been a longing and a hunger and an insatiable thirst to know more of God. Take Moses as an example. There was a man that, that already, um, uh, by the time he's up the mountain and Israel is down below, Already he has seen God's glory in ways that uh, no one else on planet Earth has ever seen. He's seen the burning bush and he's seen the plagues in Egypt and he's seen the parting of the Red Sea. He has seen God's glory and yet still he wants more. And he says to the Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. Lord, show me your glory. What does the Lord do? Does he say, oh, Moses, come on. Already, you, you've already seen it. I've shown you my glory. You already know me. What more do you want? You're asking too much. No, the Lord responds with another extraordinary revelation of himself. He tells Moses for the first time his covenant name. Not just I am, but Yahweh, the Lord. What about the Apostle Paul? Surely few people knew the risen Christ as well as Paul did. He'd met him on the Damascus Road. He then walked with him for many years as one of his apostles. He'd seen the Lord do incredible things. And yet what was the deepest longing and desire of his heart still many years later? That he would know his Saviour better. Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not that I have already obtained all this, but I press on to make it my own. He wants to know Christ more and more. His heart cry is for more fellowship with God in Jesus. It's there in the longing of David in Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing David says I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Here's, I think, the common thread in all their longing. Moses, David, Paul. They had all tasted and seen something of the greatness and the goodness of God already. We heard at the beginning this morning, taste and see that the Lord is good. They had tasted and they had seen, oh, God is mighty and he is magnificent and we have seen something of his glory. They'd all lifted their eyes to him and centered their lives on him. And it's that centering on him and looking to him that had made them more hungry for him. Knowing and seeing God ought to whet our appetite for more and more of him. It ought not to leave us satisfied, but to satisfy us and, and yet deepen our hunger and thirst. And that's a challenging thought, I think. Because how much do I desire to know him and walk with him? Do I want to know him better? Here's where I'll be honest with you about my own heart. You can tell me later on if, if you can relate to this at all. I, I feel like I have two hearts, two minds, two sets of desires warring within me. On the one hand, I reflect on these things, and maybe you've been doing this this morning, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm sure there is nothing else in all the world that I want the more of God. I want to walk more closely with him. I, I want to know him more intimately and be satisfied in his presence more and more each day. I can heartily agree with the words of John Bunyan. He said, God is the only desirable good. Nothing without him is worthy of our hearts. The life, the glory, the blessedness, the soul-satisfying goodness that is in God are beyond expression. I believe that. We believe that. And yet, on the other hand, I know there are so many things that I do count as more desirable than him. My phone... YouTube, food, sleep, comfort, possessions, the admiration of others, oh, oh, so many things. I could be here all morning listing those things. And, and I don't want him more than those things because I certainly choose those things so often over more of him. And in this, I find myself in, in a hearty agreement with a prayer that A.W. Tozer prayed. He said, oh God, I have tasted thy goodness. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. The reality is that desiring God above all other treasures is a lifelong battle for every church and every single Christian. The key is for us to look to God in the midst of that battle. Not to pretend there isn't a battle going on 
or to wait until we're less prone to wandering from him. No, we need him now. What we need to do here and now and every day is to fix our gaze again upon him, to lift our eyes and to cry out to him, to satisfy our hearts with more of himself and to work in our hearts to, to even help us want more of himself. We need to express both the longing of our hearts and our need for his grace to give us that longing. That's a good part of what we do when we come together as Christians, as a church, to pray and worship. We, we don't always come together in a God-centered mindset. How many of us came on this weekend in a God-centered mindset? Some of us, maybe, not all of us. We come, every time we come, in desperate need of his help to be God-centered. But the Lord is so pleased to give us that help when we seek it all because of what his son has accomplished on our behalf. This, this great inheritance of knowing God is already ours to enjoy if we desire it and ask for it. God will reveal himself to us the more and more we seek him. We, we, we should believe that. It is true. So many blessings and spiritual fruits come to us when our eyes are lifted again to see God, when our knowledge of God is sure and solid and growing. So many blessings, so many benefits come to us when our hearts are hungry and thirsty to know and enjoy more of him. But the greatest reward of that desire, the greatest blessing of all is that we will know more of him. We will receive more of him. He is our greatest treasure. These things will increasingly characterize us as a church when we embrace God's vision for us to be a God-centered people. And yet, having said all this, there's something I want to end with, something that matters even more than the fact that we can know God. And that is just a, a simple reminder that he first knows us. He knows us. And in this, we rejoice and should find our greatest security. I want to finish with these words from J.I. Packer. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All the knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that, that energizes us in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. That is our God. That is his heart for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, 
Lord God Almighty, our Father in heaven, the one for whom and by whom and through whom all things exist for your glory. Lord, we lift our eyes again to you this morning. And we are awestruck by what, we, what you have shown us and what we have seen. Lord, awestruck by your great majesty and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you made us for yourself. That, and that even though we ran so hard away from you, spurning you, spurning you, belittling you, replacing you with so many other things, Lord, you stooped down to rescue us by sending your son to die for us. Oh, Lord, how grateful we are this morning that you chose to know us when we refused to know you. Father, we thank you for restoring our knowledge of you and bestowing on us a gift like no other, that we have been the recipients of an eternal life whereby we now know you and know your Son in the most incredible and intimate of relationships. Father, thank you for setting these things before us again this morning. We thank you that we get to be thrilled again by these things together and that you have called us together to grow in our knowledge of you this weekend. Oh Lord, however well our hearts may have longed for you up to now, however much we may feel we know you at this point in our lives, Lord, we pray that you would instill in every one of our hearts a deeper hunger and an earnest resolve to know you more. Please help us, Lord, to be an even more God-centered people, a people whose greatest delight and utmost treasure is to know you in Christ and to know you more and more. Amen.